0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited and intrigued today to be speaking with Dr. Paul Geary about his book titled Experimental Dining, Performance, Experience, and Ideology in Contemporary Creative Restaurants, published by Intellect in 2022, which examines the work of four of the world's leading creative Michelin-starred restaurants. So using ideas from performance studies, cultural studies, philosophy, and economics, uh, Dr. Geary in the book explores the creation of the dining experience as a form of multi-sensory performance. There's a lot to get into with this book, and I'm very excited to have Dr. Geary with us today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here to talk to you.
0: So this is a really interesting book that brings a lot of different things together. Um, And so to kind of build a foundation for it, I wonder if you could start us off by introducing yourself, your academic background, and sort of explaining how you came to write this book.
1: Sure. Well, um, so I'm currently a lecturer in drama at the University of East Anglia. um, And I studied at the University of Bristol. I did my undergrad and then my PhD there. Um, And my PhD was... Focused on Heston Blumenthal, the celebrity chef. So I was looking at his his work on television, the work in his restaurants, The Fat Duck, and Dinner by Heston Blumenthal in London. Um, and I guess there were there were two things that motivated that project, and it was it was then my PhD became became this. Book, um, but the PhD started really as a response to two television programs, and the first was MasterChef. Um, I remember sitting watching it, and you you get these moments where the critics sit round and taste people's food, um, and occasionally they would describe the food as theatrical, and I remember being a bit baffled by this, not quite sure what they meant. Um, it seemed to somehow be a stand-in for something spectacular or unusual. But I started to hear it more and more once I'd noticed it, that people were talking about theatrical cuisine. Um, And so I started to think, well, what would it mean to describe food as theatrical in the way we might understand that term in theatre and performance studies, um, which is the discipline that I'm in? Um and then the second TV series was um on Channel 4 Heston Blumenthal's series Heston's Feasts where he created these historically or thematically um inspired four-course meals for a set of celebrity diners um and it was it was very playful it was exciting it was experimental um and to me it struck me that it was it was very similar to kinds of immersive and participatory performance. And so then I started thinking, well, what would it be to think about a dining experience as an immersive or participatory arts event? So I suppose those were the two things that set me off. And then through my PhD, I started to engage with phenomenology, um, philosophy of experience, uh, as a way of interrogating the experience of experimental dining, and particularly thinking about the interrelations of sensations and cognitive and reflective processing. And I was starting to think a bit about, well, we have this very sophisticated language for thinking about sight and sound in relation to the arts. There's a long history of this, but not really for the what are sometimes called the lower senses of taste and smell and touch. So what would happen if we start to think about them with that same kind of artistic or aesthetic critical rigor? So this PhD then became the the basis for the subsequent book. So in my PhD, I'd started to work through some of the critical ideas and start to develop a bit of a critical framework, which I then developed in the book and applied to four different restaurants, not just Heston Blumenthal's work.
0: So that's a beautiful um, guide into my next question, um, which is that this book is centered on four restaurants. Can you introduce us a little bit to these four restaurants, Um, perhaps starting off with explaining how you chose these particular four?
1: Sure. Well, I guess for the book, I knew I was going to use Heston Blumenthal because I'd done three or four years of a PhD on him and I wasn't going to let that material just disappear. I wanted to make some kind of use of it, um, but I wanted to extend it out and, and have a look at another another few restaurants from around the world, um, but to keep the lumber, the number low enough to be able to use them as as kind of substantial case studies so I started with Blumenthal and I wanted to find maybe three or four other restaurants that would be, that would be the focus. Um, and it was, it was all restaurants that fit within what gets called molecular gastronomy. Um, I just, I want to talk momentarily about that term because it, it, it helps lead into how I chose the restaurants that I did this term molecular gastronomy. I don't think it's the best term for what it is these restaurants do. It gets used a lot, but it's a, a truncation of a longer title, The Workshop on Molecular and Physical Gastronomy. Now, this was set up in 1992, um, and it was a, an attempt to bring scientists together to explore different aspects of cookery. And then, you know, the press couldn't be trusted to um, to use the whole title, so they shortened it down to molecular gastronomy, and it's the term that seems to have fit. But this term positions the work as scientific experimentation. Now, there are another, a number of other terms that circulate around these kind of restaurants, modernist cuisine, postmodern cuisine, avant-garde cuisine. Um, but I came across an article by an author and journalist uh, called Power Renos, and he proposed the term techno-emotional cuisine. And I was really struck by this term, and I thought it really encapsulated what it was they were attempting to do. They were playing around with technology and elements of techne. Um, and I, I draw a lot on the work of Martin Heidegger, and, and he's written a lot about technology and its roots in, in techne. And this is then coupled with a drive towards a particular kind of emotional experience. So in this article by Arenos about techno-emotional cuisine, he talks about this as a new culinary movement that was started by by Al Bulli, the the restaurant in Catalonia run by Ferran Adria, and that was then followed by chefs like Heston Blumenthal, um, René Redzepi, who runs Noma in Copenhagen, and Grant Achatz, uh, who runs Alinea in Chicago. So it was it was via thinking about techno-emotional cuisine that I found the four restaurants that I wanted to talk about. Um, and each of those four restaurants are also very highly acclaimed. Um, Al the Fat Duck, and Alinea had three Michelin stars. Um, Noma had two, although this year got its third star and all of them had appeared repeatedly in lists of the best restaurants in the world. So for me, the choice was partly motive, motivated by asking, well, okay, let's really think about what's the fuss all about with these so-called amazing restaurants. But also there was a, a partly a, a selfish reason that I'm quite happy to admit that if I write about them, I can go and visit them. Um, often when I talk to friends about my work and visiting these restaurants the most common immediate response is for them to selflessly offer to come with me um yes yeah, so that's how i landed on the four restaurants um now the restaurants themselves Albuli, is was the first one to to open it's it was based in northeast spain and run by ferran from the 1980s until it closed in 2018 Um, They got their third Michelin star in 1997 and then they retained it until they closed 14 years later. And really Al-Bulli was at the the forefront of experimental fine dining. Um, They would close for six months of the year and spend that time in research and development in their experimental workshop called Al-Bulli Tala. Um, They also had another workshop that was near the restaurant um, so they could continue in development while the restaurant was open to diners Um, and really they they started to explore the experimental tasting menu so they stopped serving a la carte you could no longer pick from a menu you were presented with this tasting menu that has been designed crafted and curated by the restaurant for you Um, As part of their work, they experimented with various new technologies in the kitchen, unusual or unconventional ingredients and combinations of ingredients and playing around with what they called the sixth sense, which was their term for the conceptual and artistic work they were doing with food about getting playful with food, using trickery and surprise and Making dishes that were quite provocative or recontextualizing classic recipes in new ways, so in other words they were they were drawing attention to the food itself and the experience of dining as something worthy of artistic and cultural consideration, not just something that was about everyday sustenance um, and the other three restaurants in some ways follow the work of albuli, although they each have their own Identity, their own history, their own approach to cuisine. Um, the fat duck, Heston Blumenthal's restaurant in Bray, in the UK, um, is—it's like Al Bulli presenting a curated tasting menu. Um, it's quite playful, draws on a lot of cultural references in the crafting of the food. They're very explicit in using scientific techniques and technologies and psychological knowledges to both craft the food and to guide the diner towards a particular kind of experience. Noma in Copenhagen, um, established and run by the head chef René Redzepi, um, is, is really focused on Nordic cuisine. So the name Noma is a contraction of Nordisk and Mad which means Nordic and food. And it sort of encapsulates Red Zeppi's approach. It's about using Nordic ingredients and they even go foraging around Copenhagen. Um, There's a real focus on natural and the rustic in the aesthetic, both in the design of the restaurant and in the food itself. And they use lots of pickling and fermentation. And then the final restaurant is Alinea in Chicago, which was opened in 2005 by Granter Schatz and his business partner, Nick Kokonis. And Alinea feels a bit like going into a very smart and chic gallery. Um, they play around a lot with the, the artistry of how food is served. So... Um, of some of the dishes that I had there. There was one where there was a a fire built in the middle of the table on which you cooked your own kebab. There were spices dangling from the ceiling um, as part of the decor that at some point were plucked down by a waiter and dropped into a dish that you were eating. Um, And there was even a a dessert where a chef came out into the dining room and painted this dessert directly onto the table. smearing various substances across the table and dropping in fruits and berries and bits of meringue a bit like a kind of jackson pollock action painting so yes those are the those are the four restaurants that i ended up writing about
0: thank you for explaining um the philosophies behind it kind of the way they go together Um, and it really is quite helpful to sort of think about this idea of molecular gastronomy Um, And actually the techno-emotional aspect, which really comes through sort of in the rest of your book, um, which we're going to hopefully kind of do a little bit of a lightning tour of. Hmm. Um, So now that we know a little bit about you, we know which four restaurants we're dealing with and have an idea of kind of the way we're thinking about them. um, I want to ask you a little bit about the structure of the book itself Um, which is that it has chapters in it that are somewhat chronological about the kind of experience of dining, right? So entering the restaurant kind of is at the beginning of the book, for example, Um, but then also has interludes woven throughout. Uh, Can you explain sort of how and why you've structured the book in this way, almost like act of a play, really?
1: In some ways, you've, you've hit on one of the reasons straight away there for for why I structured it in the way that I did. So you're right that the book sort of moves through, I guess, different temporal layers of the experience. So it starts with establishing the world of the restaurant and their creative techniques, and then moves through how the food is presented to the diner, how the diner perceives individual dishes and then builds out to the way that the dishes are organized in terms of various narratives and how connections are made across the meal. And then finally, a chapter on how all of this sits within various economic and political frames. And I suppose what I was doing there was thinking about how these different layers of the experience are interrelated they're entangled and woven through one another Um, so the the structure of the book in some ways is a bit of a conceptual conceit to be able to focus on these different arenas of activity separately Um, but in live experience they are confluent with one another Um, so I mentioned that I I draw a bit on on the work of Martin Heidegger, and in in his book, Being and Time, he talks about how it's very difficult to hear a pure noise, Um, that we don't really hear a a pure noise in everyday life. We hear, I think he uses the examples of a motorcycle or a wagon, that it takes some complicated distancing to come close to experiencing a pure sensation so when i eat a strawberry i don't taste sweetness and acidity or feel seeds in my mouth straight away i taste strawberry and then i start to unpack that experience that's my immediate experience um but of course for me to be able to do that for me to be able to hear a motorcycle hear a wagon or taste a strawberry there is clearly some kind of cultural mediation that's happening in the moment of perception so while i separate out these different we might call them temporal layers of the experience um in live experience itself they are entangled with one another woven together and inseparable um so the book the structure of the book is is mirroring something that i argue that's at work in experimental dining um that it that it sort of intervenes in our experience of apparent immediacy and attempts to tease out the different things that are at work for us to have an apparently immediate, i.e. fully present and unmediated experience. So each of the chapters of the book takes a different level or layer of experience as its focus, but the overarching argument is that they coexist and work in relation to one another. Um, and you mentioned I have these these short interludes um, in between the main chapters. And in those, I, I take a particular case study and use it as a bridge from one chapter into the next. So I'll pick up some ideas from the previous chapter and start to lead into the following chapter to start to show how these things work together. So in the first of those interludes, I... Talk a bit. Of, I talk about the um, the work of the Italian Futurists uh, and their practice with food in the early to mid twentieth century, and use this as a way of, I guess, positioning them as a historical precedent for the work of techno-emotional cuisine. Although with vastly different political frames, the Italian Futurists were um, were fascist in their politics, whereas the techno-emotional restaurants are all about hedonism pleasure and making sure you pay for it um and so the example there i'm i i pick up from the first chapter things about constructing the world of the work but then lead into how the food itself is presented so i use the case study of the italian futurists to to start to join the ideas of those two chapters
0: it's a really quite effective way I, I found at least of um keeping the ideas separate enough that you can really get into them but also making sure that they're always related um, but not necessarily that they have to be related only in this chronological way um it was almost like kind of five into indi- or f- i don't remember how many chapters off the top of my head um numbers are not my forte uh, but it was almost like <laughs> you had these multiple separate layers and you could construct them in different ways and by having them separated almost like acts or pieces um you could kind of read each one and they go oh okay you could put them together this way or you could layer them that way and that like opened up new things um so i wanted to ask you about it because it was both different from a normal book but not just as a conceit it actually i found added to the layers between them if that made sense
1: Yeah. And I guess I would, I would hope there's something slightly mirroring the tasting menu in the construction of the book that, um, that there are, there are things that emerge in one chapter and might disappear for a while and then come back later and that connections can be found, can be found across it. Um,
0: So I'm glad you mentioned the tasting menu because that is my next question. Um, you mentioned briefly when you discussed or you introduced the restaurants and that they all, uh, use this idea of a tasting menu, um, And that is something I sort of knew but had never really thought about, well, why are they doing that? And you make a really interesting argument that this is part of the balance these restaurants are trying to strike between being experimental, sort of making us experience things differently than we might otherwise, um, but it's also a way to make that experimental sensory experience that might be a little bit unusual and jar you a bit. Also familiar enough to still be pleasurable and a good experience, and sort of provide value for the very high pay- price that you're paying. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about kind of this de- this tension between the experimental and the familiar, and sort of how the use of the tasting menu as a structure helps balance that?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's an overarching concern that these for these restaurants that while they are doing some really exciting experiments with food, they are also businesses that operate within an economy of experiences, um, commodifying experiences. And so there's an expectation that they are producing something that is pleasurable. Um, And with each of the chefs, when they write about their work, there's always this lingering concern with pleasure. They They never slip into pursuing disgust or the distasteful which some artists who've used food have done but that would seem to be going a step too far for these for these restaurants because they do have this concern of well we've got to sell this and we've got to make it worthwhile for people paying the price we want them to leave feeling like they've had a good time and they've had something pleasurable so it's something that they're continually having to navigate and I think there's the tasting menu in some ways allows them to get a bit more experimental because each of the courses is relatively small so you might have anywhere between 14 or th- and 30 courses as part of a meal so some of them some of them are very tiny and that means that if a diner really doesn't like one course if it's really distasteful you know if they really object to Heston Blumenthal's snail porridge, or Rene Redzepi's black leather leaf made from crushed ants. Then it sort of doesn't matter because it's just one moment, and they can kind of brush it aside and then move into something else that's that's coming up that they might find pleasurable. So the tasting menu structure allows the restaurants to play around with lots of weird, wonderful, and wacky ideas without too much being. Um, too much resting on any one particular dish, um, but they are they are really concerned with pleasure. You find it, as I said, in in all of the chefs' writing that what they're trying to do is offer something that is pleasurable. And um, uh, Ferran Adria, who's who's written quite a lot and reflected on on his practice at Al-Bulli, um he had this, this notion that there are four different kinds of pleasure that you get with food. There's the pleasure of the satiation of hunger. There are sensory pleasures, emotional pleasures, and intellectual pleasures. And his hope was in the tasting menu to somehow hit all four of these. Um, and of course, they're not entirely separable. That what we might find pleasurable in terms of the senses might be a bit about satiating hunger it might be about how we are intellectually reflecting on the experience that we're having um so they are very very broad categories of pleasure that in the the venn diagram cross over an awful lot um but i think the tasting menu attempts to attempts to hit all of them so in terms of, you know, the satiation of hunger, I mean, in some ways it seems very extravagant that if I'm hungry, I satiate that hunger by going and spending a fortune in a three Michelin starred experimental restaurant. Of course, diners don't just go there because they're hungry, but it is part of it. Um, you know, we know of the the jokes about Nouvelle Cuisine in the 1980s, where people felt they had to go and buy a takeaway on the way home because they just had a little pretty pattern on a plate. Um the tasting menu doesn't do that. You feel very full by the end of it, um, so that's that's a pleasure that is that is provided by these by these tasting menu meals, um, and then over the course of the tasting menu, you are taken through a whole series of different sensations, of different textures and tastes and flavors and temperatures of of different concepts for individual dishes. And in that, you are getting a range of both intellectual or reflective or cognitive pleasures and sensory pleasures. Um, I know that for Heston Blumenthal, contrast is a big thing for him in how he thinks about his cuisine. He's always looking for contrast, contrast within a dish between different elements, contrast between one dish and the next that somehow, if things get too samey, they're not as pleasurable um, in how he thinks about it. Um, And then the other pleasure there is emotional pleasure. And there is the possibility for a, I mean, quite a range of emotional experiences when, when eating this food. And sometimes it would be too easy just to describe it as pleasurable you know we all we need to do is think about proust and his madeleine and its and its nostalgic qualities to know that the emotions that we might experience when when smelling or eating can't just be described as pleasurable um so i know for me i uh, hopefully this is not too much of a, a tangent, just thinking about the emotional experience of eating perhaps m- rather than the emotional pleasures. A big thing for me while I was doing my PhD, um, dining at dinner by Heston Blumenthal uh, in London, and I was given this dessert, and it's this is the example I, I opened the book with, um, a dessert called Tart of Strawberries. Um, and it was various preparations of strawberry with cream and herbs and a strawberry sorbet and i remember being really overwhelmed by it in a way that i'd never been with food before um i i was i was really taken aback and i i felt a bit out of control and i didn't know what it was i got this sense of a kind of nostalgia but i didn't know for what and this kind of intense pleasure that was then starting to slip into being Unsettling because it seemed so good, um, and it got to the point where I asked the, the the waiter to be able to identify for me what each of the constituent parts of the dish were, just so that I could get some semblance of control over myself. Um, and it turned out it was they'd used a particular kind of crystallized violet and it was reminding me i realised of a sweet that i'd eaten as a child um so here it was an it was an overwhelming experience it was something that i guess i call pleasurable but it was more than just pleasurable um mm. and it was emotionally inflected and it took some reflecting and some dissecting through language to be able to get some some control back. So I guess the, this, this push that they have for an emotional engagement, it's not just about pleasure, but a whole range of emotions that might be considered in some ways pleasurable, but sometimes it's a bit more complicated than just simple pleasure.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that might describe it as intense um
1: yes it is very intense
0: measures um in everything you're describing whether it's the food itself the environment um all these sorts of things um so i want to stay for a moment now that we've kind of talked about the structure that the tasting menu provides um you also discuss in the book the specific language in the menus um and you argue that this is analogous both to a script Um, in performing arts, right, exactly what people are going to say, etc. And also sort of a program giving kind of an overview, but not necessarily all the details of what to expect. Um, But you also look at the actual importance of the language used in the menu and other uh, communication that diners receive before they actually eat the food, and how this really sets expectations and can shape perceptions. Um, Would you mind sharing an example of One of these that you describe in the book, um, and sort of to, in order to sort of talk about and illustrate the idea of how language shapes what we seem to taste.
1: Mm. Well, it's, I mean, language is a key part of our experience. We are we are embodied, sensate creatures who have language, and language moves through us. We use it to identify sensations and things we encounter to self-reflect and to process. So language is layered onto and woven through our experience. Um, So in the restaurants, I guess there are two key ways in which language is at work as part of the constitution of the experience itself. There's the language used by the restaurant, the language on the written menu that starts to give you a map of what's to come or some you're often given a menu to take away with you so it also then becomes an aid memoir um, and a way of reflecting back and helping you to make connections across the entirety of the meal and there's the language that's that's used by the waiters and the front of house staff, when they deliver food to the table, um, the way that they describe it, the tone of voice that they use, all of these things start to have an effect on the kind of experience you're going to have. And then there's the language that that a diner will have, um, both in terms of how they're describing the experience with their fellow diners and kind of this communal sense of sharing what we're doing, but also language in consciousness, the way that language forms part of how we experience and how we reflect on experience and how we categorize our experience and work out what it is. So um, I guess there are, there are a couple of examples that come to mind here. So first with language used by the restaurant. Um, at the Fat Duck, they used to serve um, a dish called crab ice cream and it had it, it went through iterations of a couple of different names sometimes it was called crab ice cream and sometimes frozen crab bisque and they found that diners found it more acceptable and less sweet when it was a frozen crab bisque than when it was crab ice cream it was exactly the same dish but there was a different experience because of the name that it was given um and there's a, a psychologist at Oxford called Charles Professor Charles Spence, who's done an awful lot of work around language and the experience of, of dining. Um, and language helps set up expectations of what we're going to have. Um, the expectations that we have from a label will inflect and shift and frame and change the kind of experience that we have. But language also has the ability to produce sensations so Charles Spence found that reading the word salt can activate some of the, br- the same brain areas as sensing actual salt in the mouth. So in some ways, language used by the waiters to describe a dish at the table becomes like a final seasoning. Um, it has, this language has uh, a very clear performative quality that it's producing some experiential effects and affects.
0: Thank um, you for explaining that. It's fascinating.
1: I, I mean, it really is. So I've, um, I've, I've spent some time working with, um, uh, a restaurant nearby and I spent some time exploring these things with some of the, the front of house staff and, and we've, we've played around with it. And it is, it is remarkable how just changing the tone of your voice, um, um it gets you noticing different things in a dish. Um, and there are times when the language and the experience seem somehow congruous with one another. And the pleasure of that might be intensified. You know, if you've got a dish that's kind of meaty or lots of umami flavors that perhaps if you've got it presented by someone who's delivering it with a lower tone of voice, somehow that feels congruous, as though those two things match up and mutually reinforce one another. But then there are times when the tone of voice might go against the experience and that becomes a bit unsettling or unnerving and you're not quite sure why as a diner you just know that something feels a little bit off um and so language we also have it in the experiences that we're having as diners we we have language in consciousness language kind of seems to move through us and allow us to understand what it is that we are experiencing um And in the book, I I argue that that internal experience of language with food has four key functions. That it produces sensations, as with with Charles Spence's discovery about the word salt, that it can actually produce sensory experience um, in this kind of imaginative quality, but nevertheless really experienced. Language has a dissecting function that it allows us to tease apart different sensations or flavours that are at work in a, in a dish or even a single mouthful. Language has a combinatory function that it can bring together different elements as part of a coherent single experience. And it has a liminal function that it marks out the boundaries of what constitutes one perceptual experience as separate from another. Mm.
0: Thank you for explaining and sort of excavating that in a way. Um, and I sort of now want to turn to an aspect of these restaurants that has even been hovering around our conversations um, in a way that they often maybe hover just quite maybe the corner of your eye in a restaurant, which is the role of the waiter. Um, and the waiter has obvious analogies to performing arts, right? The role of an usher guiding you to your seat at a show, Um, or even a more active character kind of as you said adding the last bit of seasoning um, onto a dish and you discuss in the book a number of ways in which um, these restaurants really think about how waiters interact with diners um, as part of the overall experience including maybe some obvious stuff like uniform but also things like how the waiters move through the space Um, how much do they know about the food and how much detail Do they give the diner? Um, How attentive are they to requests? And how does that sort of manifest itself, um, particularly non-verbally? So I was wondering if we could kind of, instead of having mentions of the waiter here and there, actually talk about it for a little bit. Um, And maybe you could give us some examples of what specifically is done at some of these restaurants and kind of how the chefs um, and the restaurant team sort of see this as part of the dining experience.
1: Absolutely. Well, in some ways the the figure of the, the waiter is it's the most obvious connection between theatre or performance and the restaurant. Um and the waiter's role is is often somewhere between event manager, performer, and facilitator. And they shift as a, as a meal goes on, they they take on different roles at different moments. So they perform a function. They deliver dishes to the table. They clear the dishes away, and they introduce the dishes when they bring them. So they have this this function that they have to perform. Um, but they're also performing a kind of social role. There are certain expectations we have of how a waiter ought to perform themselves. That um, that they have to they have to be welcoming. They have to be friendly, but professional they have to be responsive to the needs of the table you know i think a lot of us have had that experience when you're sat down with a group of friends having dinner and you've just put a fork full of something in your mouth and that's the moment the waiter comes over and asks how ev- how everything is and everybody around the table just sort of mumbles through a full mouth going oh mm, yeah, are very good um that in these restaurants, they are the waiters are so careful. They're careful about when they approach the table and about when they hold back. Um, they work out often with each table how much information they want. There are some diners who sit down and they just want a very basic description and then to be left alone to eat. Other diners like the longer descriptions about the production of the particular dish and how we ought to be eating it and what we should be getting from it. Um, so the waiters have to, they have to be responsive to the mood of a particular, a particular table. Um, and I suppose in these, these restaurants, they also, they perform extra roles that you, you don't get from waiters in high street dining. Um, Because of the the nature of the cuisine, because it's experimental or unusual, the waiter becomes a bit of a guiding figure. Um, They have to often offer more explanations, particularly of unusual ingredients, to answer diners' questions, and in some ways to offer reassurance, um, particularly for diners who are less familiar with experimental cuisine that they might need just that little bit of extra reassurance that what they're being given is actually edible and they're probably going to enjoy it too. Um, and I suppose that I started to touch on this a bit when talking about language, that the the waiters really play a key role in framing the dish. So I've talked a bit about how the language that they use Um, might start to be a kind of final seasoning for the dish or guide the attention of the diner to certain key elements. Um, But there's also, I suppose, uh, an emotional framing that comes with it too. Um, And the thing that springs to mind, when I dined at the Fat Duck, um, one of the number of desserts that you're served, um, it was was called eggs in verju, verju in egg. Um, And it was a what looked like a hard boiled egg put down in front of me um, made from a white chocolate shell. And it had um, a custard white and a verju yolk. So it looked like an egg. Um, it didn't look particularly spectacular when it was put down in front of me. Um, I thought, Oh, I've just been given a hard boiled egg here. But there was this odd moment where two waiters across the restaurant, they they'd put the dish down in front of me and then started to walk away and they paused for a moment and looked back over their shoulder and grinned at me. And then they walked a little further away, paused, looked over their shoulder again and grinned. And it's such a small gesture, but it was infectious. Um, I went from the just the sense of, oh, I've been given a boiled egg to a real sense of excitement and anticipation. Um clearly they are, they're looking over at me, wondering what I'm going to make of this. Clearly there's some kind of surprise. It's not what I think it's going to be. And so it started to produce this feeling of excitement that then changed how I started eating the dish. I wanted to dive in. I wanted to find out what this thing was. And because of the grin they'd given me, I'm assuming that this is something I'm going to find enjoyable, pleasurable, or exciting. Um. So it's just a very small thing done by these waiters, but nevertheless has a significant impact on the thing that I'm eating and the experience that I'm having. Um, And sometimes the the waiters are called upon to to actually finish preparing the dish at the table. Um, So at Albuli, there was a dish um, that involved the spherification of cucumber at the table by the waiter. So spherification, it was developed by al-Bouli. It's where various intensely flavoured liquids become encapsulated as as a little bubble. And when you eat them, they sort of burst, they give you this burst of flavour in your mouth. And for this dish, it was a, a soup that had spherified cucumber. And so the waiters spherified the cucumber in the soup at the table. So they stood there at the table with this bowl of soup and they're just from a pipette, dropping something into the soup that's then transforming into these little globules in the soup itself that the diner's going to eat. And so there's an element of a kind of magic trick at work where the diners, unless they are really familiar with, um, with the molecular techniques, are not really gonna know how this works. What they get is a magic trick. And that's quite exciting. And when you're eating, you're also sat there thinking, how did they do this? How did they manage to do this? And I think that's, it's really important because it draws your attention as a diner to the createdness of the dish, the fact that this is something that has been produced. So our attention is drawn to the labor of the chef, the work of the chef as an artist. And therefore we start to look at it as something artistic we want to know okay why has it been put together in the way that it has what am I meant to be taking from this so I don't just eat it and say oh that's very nice where's the next course I actually start to think more carefully oh to really appreciate this this thing that has been crafted by these chefs who are at the top of their game um, who are doing these magical things for me I need to give it my full attention I need to really appreciate it. I need to think carefully about it. I need to be attendant to every little bit of my sensory and perceptual experience. And that's a result of, in part, the waiter coming out and finishing the preparation at the table.
0: Thank you for explaining kind of those different Mm -hmm. ways that the waiter um, changes and enhances and sort of contributes to the overall experience Um, I think that that gives a really good idea of it. It's a number of different ways. It's not just one piece or one action. Um, So listeners who are interested in this particular aspect of our discussion, I would definitely encourage you to read the whole book because there's a lot more. Um, So this has been a little taste. Um, So thinking about the idea of kind of this construction of space, right? Um, Waiters moving around the space, kind of how that influences it Um, how that almost in some ways with the finishing brings the kitchen more into the dining area. Um, Can you maybe take us through, you already mentioned at the beginning, um, one of the restaurants kind of feels like an art gallery and that has sort of implications. So using any of the restaurants, um, could you perhaps take us through the kind of what the restaurant looks like and why and sort of what message that that, how is that influencing the experimental nature of the food?
1: Sure. Well, I'll I'll go with the one that I mentioned at the beginning then, a linear that does feel a bit like a kind of chic gallery. I suppose it's it's a bit like immersive performance. Um it's not a stage space that's set off at a distance that we contemplate, um, but it's a world that the diner audience guest inhabits. So at a linear, you you enter from the street into a darkened hallway that's got these curved walls and a red light and in some ways it's a little disorienting um it for me it was a it was a mixture of of both exciting and relaxing I guess the the darkened light and then the unusual shape of this wall then starts to help me transition out of the the everyday world outside into something that's that's different or unusual in this space of the restaurant. And when you move into the restaurant itself, it's it's relatively dim lighting, but with spotlights. Um, so it is like being in a gallery space. It certainly doesn't feel like a domestic dining room. Um, and it starts to encourage a particular kind of attitude. Um, so we have associations of how we approach objects in a gallery space and if you start to make a restaurant look like a gallery space you can't help but start to use some of those interpretive strategies that you have in a gallery with the food that's being presented Um, and then this is intensified by certainly a linear they have these kind of amazing sculptural forms with some of the foods and they play around with various food presentations so one starts to look at it like one would a sculpture rather than a plate of food. And in some ways, this helps to distance you from your personal taste to just appreciate it in terms of I like the food. I don't like the food. Instead, we start to adopt an aesthetic attitude to appreciate the food for its qualities rather than just whether I like it or not. Um so an example of this at a linear, they have um, they had a dish called graffiti, and it's a it came out as a, a slab of concrete that's dumped down on the table with um, a meringue on top that looks a bit like the concrete, and then a waiter comes over and sprays it like they're graffitiing the concrete with a, a balsamic spray, and this dish was a, a transition from savory sweet um, so there was a mixture of meringues and nuts and a, a sorbet and this this kind of sharp balsamic vinegar and western food cultures we tend to do savory then sweet so this was a this was a in some ways a strange mix as a as a transition course and in terms of personal taste certainly for me, there was the possibility for it to be quite unpleasant because it's unfamiliar, not part of the quotidian food culture that I am used to. But because of its sculptural style and because there is a performance of an act at the table, the spraying of the, the can like graffitiing, and because it's in this space like a, like a gallery, I became much more attendant to the qualities of the food itself its textures its tastes its flavors its temperatures rather than whether I immediately like or dislike it and I suppose the the lighting in the restaurant helps with this too using these spotlights it focuses focus my attention on the table in front of me so while I can see other diners in the restaurant um there's a sort of, they're, they're at a distance and slightly dim. So I'm slightly less influenced by the way that other diners are experiencing their food and dishes that they're having now that are coming later for me. Um, so the lighting encourages me to keep focused on my journey of the meal that I'm having at my table. Mm.
0: Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think the kind of the the idea of it looks like an art gallery and therefore you're starting to use maybe the muscles and the habits you would in an art gallery um, makes sense. And then of course the dishes you describe are very sculptural and there's a clear linkage there. So it's a really good example, I think to kind of show how these things relate to each other. Um, So as we come to sort of uh, finishing up to a degree, our tour of the book, I want to turn to some aspects that we've already mentioned a little bit, but you kind of devote uh, more attention to towards the end of the book about sort of the idea of excess, luxury, um, and particularly class um, and price and access. So can you maybe talk a little bit about um, the tensions around this? Because in some senses, it's very clear. They are luxurious. They are excessive. that is highly priced. Uh, there is a class element to who has access to these restaurants. But there's also a political discourse Um, going on in restaurants generally, and even in these sort of um, very famous and fancy restaurants around things like reducing waste um, and eating local. Um, And there's something of a tension between these sorts of things. So I was wondering if you could sort of explore that a bit.
1: Yeah, well, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right that you just can't get away from the expense of these meals, the cost of the meal itself, the the added costs of the wine that you might have with it, particularly if you choose to have a, a wine flight where they pair wines with individual dishes and often travel and accommodation, too, because these for the majority of people, these restaurants aren't on the doorstep. So you just can't get away from. The cost. Now, the way the restaurants themselves often talk about their practice, they they say, well, as long as you can afford to come, everybody is welcome. So they say, you know, there's no there's no dress code. You can come wearing whatever you like. We want you to be comfortable. Um and you can see what they're doing there, that they are um they're attempting to be welcoming, they're they're attempting to not be as exclusive as they actually are but of course they are exclusive um they there is and there is a marked difference between say those diners um who would save up for a long time to go and eat at a restaurant like this and those for whom the expense is far less significant um so that but these political and economic frames or discourses are an important factor in the constitution of the experience itself so the experience is sold as something excessive and luxurious Um, but the restaurants also as you mentioned try and put in these these things that somehow mitigate the excessive or luxurious nature so they they try and they do engage with a certain kind of food politics. Now, in in Julian Bugini's book, The Virtues of the Table, he talks about the holy trinity um, of of contemporary food politics, of the seasonal, the local and the organic, that these are treated as kind of an absolute standard of ethical eating. Um, And it's interesting that with those, there is a kind of class inversion, that these things that, you would have had to have done as a working class person um, up until relatively recently. You would have had to have eaten seasonally, locally, and organically, because it was only the wealthy who could eat out of season or could eat ingredients brought from further away around the world. There's now been this inversion where um, the seasonal, local, and organic gets associated with a certain kind of middle class proclivity that it is the the realm of the middle classes; those who can shop in certain kinds of re- in certain kinds of supermarkets um, can go to farmers' markets, can dine in certain kinds of restaurants, um, and so these restaurants, when they foreground the seasonal, local, and organic um, provenance of their ingredients, they're in some ways attempting to mitigate some of the guilt that might come along with. This kind of conspicuous consumption. But they're also doing something that's perhaps a little more insidious in this historical class inversion. Um, so in the book, I don't touch too much on whether the seasonal, local and organic is actually ethical eating or not. I was, I was more focused on how it's deployed in these restaurants, the way that it becomes a mitigation of guilt that if when i dine there if i feel i'm eating ethically i can consume without guilt which then might intensify the pleasure or enjoyment and that's the gesture that the restaurants are making that if they can mitigate some of the guilt that might classically come with conspicuous consumption it might intensify the pleasure Um, and often they do this by having dishes that somehow perform either implicitly or explicitly a connection to earth and to nature dishes designed to look like landscapes or like forests so that if the contemporary industrialized world has alienated us from the processes of food production and the land then these dishes supposedly reconnect the food on the plate to the land from which it was drawn um Indeed, there's a there's a particular example from Al that seems to seems to go even further and offer an eco an attempt at an ecological intervention. So it's a, it's a dish called burnt earth, and it's made from chocolate and it's made to look like scorched and barren dirt. So it's this stark reminder of the outcomes of ecological exploitation. But the effect of this um, it's perhaps for the the diner to feel as though they are they're taking a moment to consider ecological catastrophe, to acknowledge the destruction that's caused by global capitalist production, but with this lingering irony that the dish itself is made using heavy production processes to create an expensive and enjoyable experience. So the potential critique. Um, of the political and economic system that's folded into the dish um, is part of the very system that it's attempting to critique and does so in such a way that the diner's pleasure, which itself is a core part of hedonistic capitalism and the commodification of experience, that pleasure is intensified by feeling like they're somehow participating in a political discourse that counters the very thing that they're doing.
0: The irony is very real um, in examples like that. So I'm glad you've mentioned that one um, and that obviously it was included in the book as well. So I was wondering if we come towards the end of the interview, if you, I learned a lot from this. Um, I think our listeners will have a lot to think about from this. Um, But as you mentioned at the beginning, you've been engaged with these topics and thinking critically about these restaurants for quite a while. Um, And I was wondering if there was anything you came across in the research or writing process that surprised you?
1: Um, I suppose something I I was really struck by was getting into thinking about deconstruction with food. You know, we hear it a lot about dishes that are deconstructed um you know anyone familiar with with food tv programs things like like master you will you will hear chefs talking about doing a deconstruction um and i was i was really struck by thinking about the connection between deconstruction as a culinary technique and potential connections with philosophical deconstruction um that they are not the same thing, and but there are moments where they might coalesce. Um, so, culinary deconstruction. I mean, it originated as a term at Bully and it was about reimagining or reworking or taking apart and putting a dish back together. Uh, so, it's a kind of adaptation of conventional or classic dishes, um, and often. When, we t- when people talk about a, a dish that is deconstructed, it's perhaps more accurately described as a destructured dish, something that's taken apart and reconfigured. Um, but unlike philosophical deconstruction, it maintains the sense of an essence of a, a true original or essential notion of what that dish is. Um But I think there are ways in which the restaurants engage in a practice that is closer to philosophical deconstruction. The deconstruction in the philosophical sense um, from Jacques Derrida's work is, it's about intervening in taken for granted relationships between language and meaning. It sort of reveals the historical and cultural contingency of meaning and undoes a sense of pure self-evident presence presence of both meaning and of our own experience. So to deconstruct is in some ways to defamiliarize. Um, and there was a, a dish at linear called Rhubarb Seven Different Textures, where there were seven different preparations of rhubarb. You know, there were, there were jellies, sorbets, it was dried, it was compressed with gin, it was served as a sponge, it was juiced, it was poached. And none of these is more rhubarb than any of the others. What this does is it it makes rhubarb cease to be a single thing. It's no longer one ingredient with a holistic identity. It doesn't have a self-evident and self-sufficient identity as an ingredient. The label rhubarb becomes a name that holds together these different qualities that can be deployed in different ways. And as I eat that dish, I can't say with any certainty what rhubarb is. I suppose even now I've said rhubarb so many times that it ceases to have any meaning for me the word feels kind of strange in my mouth. Um so I was struck by I mean that none of the none of the chefs have as far as I'm aware read Derrida or engaged with deconstructive continental philosophy and yet they've they occasionally hit upon something that does seem to be putting some of those principles of a deconstructive gesture into practice
0: Mm. thank you for taking us through that um i'm I'm glad we we got to kind of hear about that because it is something you hear a lot about um sort of like molecular gastronomy it's a thing a phrase you maybe associate with particular tv show or something like that um and kind of go okay hang on wait what is that that sort of sounds like jargon um So thank you for sort of unpacking that a bit um, for us. And then as my traditional final question, um, this book has just come out. It was published this year, 2022. Um, But if I can ask, what are you working on now or next?
1: So the next big thing that I'm starting to think through is is working even more with um, the work of Martin Heidegger and Martin Heidegger in relation to performance. So particularly thinking about modes of performing and understanding oneself, um, about the force of of ideology um, and ideological discourse in intimate and personal experience, and thinking carefully about lived experience, which is something that Heidegger is very dubious about. Thinking about lived experience as a as a foundation of identity, political action, and in some ways, our own sense of self-worth.
0: All right, then. That sounds like a lot to get into and hopefully <laughs> uh, explain to uh, the rest of us as clearly as you have in your current book. Um, so while you're off doing that, listeners can read Uh, The book we've just been discussing on this episode, which, as a reminder, is titled Experimental Dining, Performance, Experience and Ideology in Contemporary Creative Restaurants, published by Intellect in 2022. Dr. Paul Geary, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with the podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been it's been lovely to talk to you and, you know, feeds one's inner narcissus to just (laughs) keep talking. (laughs)
0: Lovely.